0: Hey, folks. Before we start today, I'd love to briefly mention my favorite new podcast. It happens to be, coincidentally, our new weekday show called, appropriately, The Next Big Idea Daily, hosted by my dear friend, Michael Kavnat, he of the mellifluous baritone. It really is phenomenal. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. LinkedIn presents... I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, the delightful, disturbing, and downright fascinating story of the human mind. Paul Bloom is no fan of textbooks.
1: I would never write a textbook. I wouldn't want to read a textbook.
0: Which is kind of funny because Paul is a professor. He's taught psychology for decades, first at Yale and now at the University of Toronto. And despite his professed loathing of textbooks, he recently found himself wanting to write a book that would
1: capture... Basically everything I know about the mind.
0: Sounds an awful lot like a textbook, right? Except what Paul ended up writing is unlike any textbook I was ever forced to slog through back in school. For one thing, it's actually fun to read. It's brisk, accessible, occasionally bawdy, and thoroughly unputdownable. It's a joyride of a book, and it's called Psych, the Story of the Human Mind.
1: I'm honest about the limitations of psychology, our our failures, our embarrassments, um, what we struggle to explain. But I also get to talk about our discoveries, everything involving memory and language and mental illness and consciousness and reasoning, uh, emotions, the whole shebang.
0: This is exactly the kind of book we love here at the Next Big Idea Club. Smart but approachable, profound yet whimsical. And Paul is exactly the kind of author we adore warm clever curious contrarian and above all else deeply knowledgeable there's a reason why his last book the sweet spot the pleasures of suffering and the search for meaning was chosen by our curators malcolm gladwell adam grant susan kane and daniel pink as one of the best works of nonfiction published in 2021 what i especially enjoy about paul is that he's one of those people who's capable of saying really interesting things surprising things about many different topics, and because of that, we covered a ton of ground in our interview. The origins of human consciousness, the fraught legacy of Sigmund Freud, the reliability of IQ tests, and why happiness isn't all it's cracked up to be. Paul and I had such a long, wide-ranging chat that a lot of great material did not make the cut. If you want to hear our complete two-hour interview, which contains extended riffs on artificial intelligence, free will, and the introvert-extrovert continuum, among many other topics. You can check it out now by downloading the Next Big Idea app. If you'd rather stick with this 60-minute version, that's totally fine. I guarantee you'll still come away with a completely new understanding of and appreciation for the three-pound wrinkly mass between your ears.
2: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
0: Paul Bloom, welcome to the next
1: big idea podcast. It is. It is great to talk to you. Looking forward to this
0: let's start with one of your outrageous claims which is that between our ears we have this three pound wrinkly lump of meat in our skulls we call our our brains and you claim that these brains of ours give rise to all of our intelligence all of our conscious experience you admit that this is a shocking claim even to you why is it
1: shocking so I say a lot of radical things in my book. I make a lot of claims where I say, this might not be true. People are debating this. This is controversial. But the idea that the brain is the source of mental life is, is entirely non-controversial yeah. in psychology. But at the same time, I acknowledge how shocking it is. We are, um, I think, common sense dualists. We naturally believe that we're separate from our brains. The idea that we're just physical things is shocking and upsetting. It calls into question religious ideas. It calls into question spiritual ideas. I think I I have more respect for somebody who hears this and says, oh, my God, that's horrible. You have to be wrong. Then someone says, oh, ho-hum, whatever. It really is a radical idea.
0: It is astonishing. And as you say, it's belied by this this physical experience, this mental experience we all have, that we're floating
1: behind our eyes. That's right. C. S. Lewis, I think, was the one who put it, said you think you have a body, not you are a body. Yeah. And uh-huh. so when there's stories about people switching bodies or leaving their body, floating away from their body during dreaming, you mean? Know, it makes sense. It's a very intuitive notion. And the idea that we are in some way inextricably bound to our physical selves because we are our physical selves, just doesn't doesn't feel right. As a scientist, you're very humble in the book
0: about what we what we can be certain of or somewhat certain of how, how high a degree of confidence we can have about various areas of various assertions of psychology. But this seems to be at the top of the list of things we're quite certain of because of a long history of experiments, right, where we see that if you remove
1: or damage a part of the brain, your
0: personality fundamentally changes
1: right so in some way we've known this along for a long time everybody knew that you know alcohol can inflame the passions that caffeine or drugs can affect in different ways everybody knew for longest time that a sharp blow to the head could obliterate consciousness that dementia or various diseases could could mess up your capacity for reason and rationality but The dualist intuition is strong, and and so people tried to say, well, the the soul is tethered to the brain in some way, and, and in some way damage to brain affects the soul, but it still exists separately. And I think that that notion has been whittled away over time. You know, you go to a conference and people are talking about about the most intimate aspect of yourself, maybe um, your sense of morality, which is something I'm very interested in. And people are talk, arguing about where in the brain it is. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but nobody is going to stand up and say, well, it's not in the brain at all. It's in, in the spiritual realm, not because they're afraid of, of, you know, of being ostracized or something, but because there's no evidence for it. Um, you could you could get people to do moral judgments. You could look at what parts of the brain are activated. And you can, to varying degrees, develop a theory of how neurons wired together in very complicated ways can give rise to something like moral understanding and moral belief. And it seems then that we have
0: effectively like solid state drives to some degree, right? Because when you're, I think you say at one point that when we're knocked unconscious, we lose recent memories often yeah. that have not yet been encoded, but we don't, lose our longer-term memories, which would suggest that they've been encoded in some kind of solid physical manifestation in the brain. In fact, all
1: mental life is, is such. That's right. So, so short-term memory, you know, your memory of the last sentence you said is just as much a physical event in the brain as, as a memory of, you know, of your hometown. But there's, there's a process called consolidation. Where the short-term memory turns into a long-term memory it, it it gets etched from one part of the brain to another. and you know long-term memories are we have an enormous it has we have an enormous capacity for memory and and you're right. you get smacked on the head, you get in a car accident or something. it could disrupt the consolidation process and memories can get then get lost forever
0: well and and this would also suggest, that there's somewhat of a zero-sum game when it comes to memory, right? Because we have, we just have the three pounds, give or take, <laughs> right? Of brain. And we have our 86 billion neurons, give or take. And there's only so much space. Maybe the finiteness of the human brain helps
1: to explain why we have such bad memories. So the capacity, you're exactly right. The capacity of our memory has to be finite because our brains are physical things. So so it's in principle possible to run out of space and you have to start deleting stuff. Right. On the other hand, one of the findings of psychology, one of the shocking findings of psychology, and there are a few, is how bad our memories are. Mm. And yeah. I, I don't know if I don't, I don't really think it's due to capacity limitation. I think it's more okay. because people have the wrong idea of memory. People tend yeah. to think memory is like you know I'm holding up my iPhone and recording a scene, and then it's on the memory of the iPhone. And then you you get back your memory, just recover the video, and forgetting under this view is just not being able to access the the memory, but if you if you had a good psychiatrist or you thought really hard, you could access it. And people who study memory say this this picture is is really mistaken. Remembering something is much more of a reconstructive event. Yes. And so it's reconstructed, it's your best guess as to what happens. And your guess could be helped along by your suppositions of what should have happened, your memory of stories that you told before, even memories that are extremely vivid. Mm, you swear no. in your life it really happened, turn out to be often dramatically false. There's an irony there because our most deeply
0: encoded memories, our favorite memories, we've reconstructed more times, right? Or Like we have a certain set of stories we like to tell or memories we like to share. And I, I feel this about some of my favorite memories that I've told the story so many times that I actually
1: have no access yeah. to the, to the you have, All you have is access right? to the stories you told. And that, that is ironic. Your most important memories tend to be the most corrupted. There was a study um, actually done by my colleagues, some colleagues at Yale, where right after the terrorist attacks of of nine uh, eleven happened, she asked people, where were you when you heard about them? And they told her. And then she asked, I forget how many years later, where were you when you heard about it? And he said, Oh, I know exactly why. And they told a story and the story was wrong. And and that, as you point out, that's the irony because that's the thing you tell people, you talk about it, you're remembering yeah. you know, we simplify stories, you're remembering the simplified version.
0: What are the takeaways of this? I mean, obviously, it's, you know, we clearly need to be more humble,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I guess there, there are legal implications as well, aren't there? I, I think a lot of psychology is really interesting and doesn't have many practical implications. just interesting to no, know about the mind. This does. Um, yeah. The work on the fragility of memory and unreliability of memory, much done by the uh, psychologist Elizabeth Loftus, has led to a revolution in legal system. You know, it used to be, you, you know, somebody's on a witness stand and they, they point and they said, that was the man who shot me. And that's it. It seems irrefutable. And there's been so many cases mm-hmm. now of DNA yeah. evidence and video evidence that sometimes somebody could totally believe that it was this person not that person happened here and not there, but be wrong. And and now I think there's—now they've changed policies for how you do lineups and how you do photo identification. There's also cases where people have confessed to crimes that they didn't commit. Right. It seems unbelievable. This is astonishing. You know, if you have me on tape saying, "Oh, yeah. I, I murdered th- th- this person," well, well, what I, mean, I could be lying, but how could I be mistaken about something so significant? It turns out that under pressure, people, particularly, and not everybody, but some people are more malleable than others, can be be pushed. Sometimes, you know, without any ill intent. Sometimes, just you know, I know the guy did it. I'm just going to yell at him for a while till he till he fesses up, and you could create a false memory in somebody. And so the legal systems become a bit sensitive to that as well.
0: We talked earlier about the sensation we all have of, of, of floating in our skulls, and, and we've now been talking about the impermanence of our memories. It reminds me of the Milan Candera line uh, describing the unbearable lightness of being, which I think you could just as easily call yeah. the delightful lightness of being. Right. I mean, I, people talk about existential angst, which I, I can relate with, but I think it's equally sensible to talk about existential euphoria like we exist. Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> you know, But it gets to this question of how did consciousness emerge in the first place? Why is it necessary to be aware of being yeah. aware? And, and of course, philosopher David Chalmers, who we had on the show, talks about this as the hard problem of consciousness. Do you see it as a hard problem?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. I think that there there are, and and David Chalmers, you know, admits this, different things we mean when we mean when we talk about consciousness. So one one sort of consciousness is is the philosopher Ned Block talks about access consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that's just you're conscious of something if you get to report it. So right now I'm not conscious of my blood pressure. I can't tell you what my blood pressure mm-hmm. is. Yeah. But I am conscious of the sound of your voice. So I could talk about it, and I could remember and I could think about it. There's that sense of consciousness which you could program into, into a computer, and it's more of a sort of informational thing. But then there's consciousness in, in the Chalmers sense, phenomenological consciousness, which is, you know, what it feels like to hold your newborn, to slam your hand in a car door, to eat ice cream. There's something which is, is sort of ineffable about it. And it's not only mysterious how the brain gives rise to it or why the brain gives rise to it. It's also of some moral significance. So we are living in a world now, well, we're living in a world now with many fellow creatures, animals, and the extent to which they have experiences, I think, bears on the morality of how we treat them. And now we're creating more and more, I don't know whether to call them creatures, but but intelligences. Mm-hmm. Blake Lamone, I think, this a Google engineer, about a year ago, ended up, Worrying that the chatbot he was working with was sentient, was conscious. Yeah. And then he complained to his bosses and he said, Well, if his consciousness is a slave, we gotta, we gotta let it free. So they put him on leave, and there was a lot of people who mocked him. But I think he was um, or he is a canary in a coal mine, in that this is gonna become more and more common as the chatbots, as these AIs become smarter and smarter and smarter. Sooner or later, pretty much everybody's gonna say, Wow, that's a consciousness. Now, the problem is, just like you can't know for sure that I'm conscious, you kind of infer it. We can't know for sure what is and what isn't conscious, but it matters. It's just an extraordinary moment, isn't it? Because,
0: you know, for decades, people have been debating... What the utility of consciousness is, why it's emerged. I think I think Chalmers coined the hard problem of consciousness some like twenty plus years ago, yeah. and there have been a camp that felt that it was substrate dependent, meaning that it has to emerge out of brains opposed to opposed to silicon. And and I, I I've always loved Antonio Damasio's explanation, uh, which which I'm sure you're familiar with, Damasio and his uh, who studied the evolution of feelings. And his assertion, which I think is fascinating, we had him on the show, is that feeling preceded cognition and was a prerequisite for consciousness. Because it we're these fragile creatures that evolved very quickly to start begin to have, have these sensations of, of pain and pleasure to try to navigate the world. Um, and that that sensation you know, results in a feeling of being inside your body. And that was a necessary prerequisite for developing this experience of consciousness. That always made sense to me. But now we're really doing the experiment in real time of seeing whether consciousness or some kind of sentience can emerge uh, on silicon and just... A week or two ago, some Microsoft researchers published a paper called Sparks of Artificial General Intelligence, Early Experiments with GPT-4, that said one of these early sparks they reported of emergent AGI was a capacity for theory of mind. Yeah. So it it feels like, I, I, my, my sense has been everybody, it's, it's fashionable to scoff at people who say that sentience may be beginning to emerge. But my view has always been, we don't understand the emergence of consciousness in humans, right? So how, how can we be so certain as to exactly when and how it, it could emerge?
1: Yeah, there's two really hard, very pressing questions here. And one is, you know, it, it's it's something which we're going to get a handle on, which is how smart will these machines get? And I'll tell you, just trying try maybe, maybe to set up to, to try to encourage the, the public policy of people admitting that they were wrong. I could not have imagined that there would be machines like, uh, like Bing or Chad GPT. If you asked me two years ago, I would have said, we'll get them in 50 years, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And now we have them. And, and like a lot of people, I'm just shocked at how quickly we got them and how smart they are. Will they reach a point where they don't get any smarter? Or will they get to a point where, um, where there's just there's artificial general intelligence and they're smarter than us in every possible way? Their their relationship to you and me will be like our relationship to a three year old. So that's question one. Yeah. But then question two is the consciousness question. Maybe you have Maybe we'll be dealing with a machine that could think rings around us that can talk, it can persuade us, can figure out exactly how our minds work, but there's nothing inside. It's just a bunch of, of connections, of statistics, and it has no experience. But how would we know? There's a new book out from a
0: theoretical psychologist called Nick Humphrey um, called Sentience, the Invention of Consciousness. And he, he has a theory that sort of dovetails with what has always been my intuition, which is that, that you know, he says, well, sentience was obviously a biological trait that arose through natural selection, and among social apes, it was a great advantage to be able to read people's minds, to predict the behavior of other apes. And so we had to create you know, this theory of mind, this model of other people's motivations and personalities. And if you can be better at predicting how other humans are going to behave, you have a great advantage in a highly social species. And the best way to do this is to understand our own motivations and have a theory of mind that applies to ourselves. Understand ourselves so we can put ourselves in the shoes of others, and that this process—a theory of other minds—and then by reflected back to us a theory of our own mind resulted in the emergence of of conscious experience. So it's an interesting argument. It's a you know it's a, it's a hypothesis effectively. But what's astonishing is we're starting to see something like this with chat GPT-4. And there was a fascinating post recently by Robert Wright, the wonderful author who wrote Non-Zero and the Moral Animal, I'm sure you're familiar with, who's working on a book about cognitive empathy, who had been testing GPT-4 with lots of very complex questions about reading all the motives of a collection of humans in a given situation and and understanding their various perspectives. And he was just astonished by the sophistication of GPT-4 and and believes that it has developed a kind of cognitive empathy. What's interesting is we're starting to see... um, I I mean, I, I think the Microsoft researchers themselves, who obviously have a partnership with OpenAI, have said that we're watching... Intelligence emerged not unlike the emergence of of human capabilities from a, from a young age. You know, the theory of mind emerges in children. Yeah. I think at some age, right?
1: And in some way, that 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 sort of is provides a test or a challenge to Humphrey's theory. So, so um, I'm a big fan of of Bob Wright and his thoughts about about cognitive empathy. And if I remember right, his example is something like. Um, one of his examples he uses somebody, this may be somebody else, but the example is uh, somebody embarrasses himself. And um, and how does he feel after he makes a stupid mistake? How does the person whose friend feels? Suppose he's trying to impress this girl, but you like the girl. How do you feel to watch him embarrass himself in front of her? And the machine, the, the chat GPT, is pretty smart about this. Yeah. So yeah. Humphrey might then say that, well, maybe in order to be this smart at it, it has to be able to feel these emotions itself. But are we gonna already go to the claim that it feels embarrassment and satisfaction and shame and and delight and sympathy? I don't know. I don't feel I don't feel I'm ready to go there quite yet. In in part, and this is actually David Chalmers has talk, spoken about this before, in part because at this point the large language models are untethered to the physical world. They're they're just no, well, I don't want to say just, but but they're but they work through prediction of what one what what word will follow another yes. word, you know, right? But, and, and a lot more than that. But that kind of thing. But they don't have a they don't have motor control. They don't they don't act on the world. They don't perceive the world. Maybe once we get that, um, yeah. So let me ask you something because I I just heard a discussion by um by Eric Hole and a uh, neuroscientist and Russ Roberts, and this was turning over the issue whether there should be a moratorium on AI research. Yes, that we should we should shut it down for a while because because there's a huge threat as as we do with, with research into biological weapons and nuclear weapons and so on. It is it is getting to a point where we don't know where it's going. I, do you have any sympathy for doing that?
0: I, I personally do. Yeah, we had a recent conversation with Kevin Roos, Yeah, you know, who the New York Times reporter, uh, with whom Sydney also noticed Chat uh, GPT four fell in love. Yeah, tried tried <laughs> to break up his his marriage. <laughs> tried to disrupt his marriage. And yeah, I'm of the opinion that that we should err on the side of caution here.
1: Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of people who I respect, who are pretty smart, and they're very, very worried. And I've started to get worried with them. I, in some way, we could we could talk about it the way the rationalists talk about it and say, "What are the odds that AI, you know, unfettered keeps developing and something terrible comes from it?" And you know, and if you think the odds are very small, but they're like five percent, well, that's that's for the destruction of our species. Those that's a quite a worrying percentage. So I don't know.
0: Unacceptably high. Yeah. Yeah. Unacceptably high. When we come back, we lighten things up by talking about the naughty father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud.
2: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Businessweek, Fortune, and Wired, And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets.
1: The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all.
2: Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career.
0: I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion.
2: Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort And your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Well, to lighten things up a bit, let's talk about Sigmund Freud. My experience growing up in the 80s in high school was that Freud was sort of thought of as one of the three or four most revolutionary thinkers of the last couple of centuries, not only in Freud's own mind, but but more broadly, yes. right? That there was Darwin, there was Freud, maybe Marx, Einstein, you know, these people who, who whose who's thinking really changed the world. I, I don't think I've seen a major thinker lose credibility as dramatically as Freud has in the last yeah, several Freud, decades. Freud right? has had
1: a significant fall from grace. I'm, I'm reading from a, a review right now. I have this in front of me. I just pull it up. Um, it's a, it's a, by a biography of Freud by Frederick Cruz, and it summarizes the, the idea, Cruz's depiction of Freud as liar, cheat, incestuous child molester, woman hater, money worshiper, chronic plagiarist, and all-around nasty nut job. And you can get a degree in psychology at a great university without ever hearing his name, ever spoken. And it's amazing. that's not entirely mistaken. It, it's people, he, he got just about everything wrong. It's yeah. claims about the anal stage, the oral stage, the primal scene, penis envy, Oedipus complex, nothing. I don't think any of the specifics stand up to scrutiny.
0: But how about the detail that, a man who smooths the crease of his trousers in place before lying down on the couch reveals himself to be a coprophiliac, <laughs> someone somewhat ob- somewhat obsessed
1: with their feces. <laughs> yeah. Right. He, he, was, um, he was very quick to judge, you could say. <laughs> but I actually think Freud belongs in my book. And, and I think he belongs in training of a, of a psychologist and belongs. I, I think there's a few reasons. One thing is simply his historical prominence. Yes. We all kind of live in a world that was partially created by Freud. If you ever describe somebody as having an anal personality or say to somebody, I'm not your mother, you're you're channeling Freud whether you know it or not, so you should know it. I think Freud was a wonderful writer. I think he often mm-hmm. has some extraordinary insights. For me, I think Freud's great accomplishment was he really did build a science of the mind based on the idea of a dynamic unconscious. and. Everything else has got sort of jettisoned away, but that, but the notion that we don't know why we do what we do has remained, and I think is right, and I think is important. Certainly, there were uh, references in poetry and literature
0: and so on to this notion that people have desires and 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 uh, having an, uh, the unconscious was, to some degree understood vaguely before Freud, but how, but, but your view would be that he was pretty critical to, 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 uh, h- helping, uh, the whole world understand more broadly that there's so much of what, of, of what
1: we think and feel that's inaccessible to our conscious minds. That's right. Uh, even Freud himself, who was not, you know, who was very quick to take credit for everything, conceded that the notion of an unconscious was around long before him. But like you say, I think Freud, Freud tried to build a psychology out of it. And, yeah. you know, even though he got everything wrong, it was the, the right general idea.
0: And Well, there's also, as you say, I, I'm quoting you here, something liberating about his openness to sexuality. And you say, I love this line. If everyone is a pervert,
1: perhaps nobody is a pervert. Thank you. I'm very fond of that line. <laughs> kind of, you know, I find writing so hard, but I, I wrote that line and I kind of chuckle. Oh, that's, yeah, that's yeah. right. Really well, I hope, if, I hope it, one day somebody will quote it back to me. So I'm very happy. It, it, it's great news for perverts
0: everywhere, which Freud would say is all of us.
1: Yes. So Freud was, you know, I think Freud clearly overemphasized sex. I mean, he couldn't. Yeah, it was everywhere for freud everywhere and everything yeah. but everyone else was underemphasizing it um, yes. you know freud freud would talk quite candidly about the sexual desires of women yeah. which was not a thing among his contemporaries it was shocking to his contemporaries he would basically argue your your sort of average person is filled with with desires which one might call perverted and there's something i I do think there's something liberating about that for for people who who are sexual minorities of some sort or another to realize that that they're just you know, one set of perverts among many
0: well, my my mother, a retired psychoanalyst, will be delighted that we said we found a few nice things to say about Freud. <laughs> <in laughs> the conversation it's,
1: it's unusual
0: these days, but, uh, yeah. yeah, let's talk about mental disorders. I was really surprised to read. In your book that the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health recently said, no new drug targets or therapeutic mechanisms of real consequence have been developed for more than four decades. So it, it, it seems like we've been maybe a, l- a little stuck when it comes to making progress on treating serious
1: mental disorders. I try to be candid in the book about the problems of psychology and we've gone through a replication crisis, which is quite serious affecting social psychology, developmental psychology, cognitive psychology, but clinical has its own problem, which is, I don't think we've made a huge amount of progress in the last few decades. Our drugs are not demonstratively better than they were a while ago. Our talk therapy is kind of like if you were seeing a therapist in 1990, it wouldn't be so different from seeing a therapist now. And I'm not sure why this is so, I, I kind of know why it's so for the drugs, which has to do with financial incentives. People have written about this. It's just very expensive to develop a new drug. So it's much better to simply take an old drug, tweak it, give it a new name and market it, rather than try something totally new. What some people will say, and I, and I hope they're right, is that revolution's just around the corner. Maybe it's psychedelics. Maybe it's some sort of brain stimulation, little electric shocks and mild electric shocks in the right area make your depression go away. Maybe it's mindfulness, though I think that that's currently being used a lot and, and is of some some use, but not a revolution. I mean, I'll also say that, as I'm very much stressed in the book, that, that our best evidence suggests therapy and drugs do work. They're better than not doing them.
0: And, and you say that all disorders exist on a continuum. And this has implications for neurodiversity. That's interesting to me. How How
1: so? So there's a big debate over whether disorders are categorical or continuous. So um, right. and I wouldn't say all disorders. Uh, I think there are some which, which really are, you know, Parkinson's, you either can't, you know, you can't you can vary okay, in intensity. Sure. You know, it's not like it's a smooth gradient from normal to Parkinson's. Some things sort of stand out as separate categories. but. The idea here is that when you think about anxiety or depression, there's a temptation to see it as something you have or you don't. And the claim for anxiety and depression is it's on a continuum. There are people who are very cheerful and there are people who are sad and there are people who are sadder. And at a certain point, you say, that's a disorder. And the issue of neurodiversity comes in because the point at which you say that's a disorder isn't so much a, a sort of scientific question, it's a, it's a practical one, it's a moral one, it's a political one. There are some people who, who, on extremes, who say there's no such thing as mental illness. This is a stigmatizing term. Society yep. should change to make the world better for people who are different. And I think in the extreme version, that's nonsense. You, yep, you see yep. somebody who has schizophrenia, who has severe depression, who has a social phobia; they can't leave the house. These people are living in misery. I think something like severe schizophrenia, severe depression, should be thought of as akin to cancer, which is you, you want to cure it. But there is a question of where you do the cutoff, and and where I where I'm sort of on board of neurodiversity is, I think sometimes society should change in order to make things better for for people who mm-hmm. don't match our normal way of thinking who are not um who are neurodiverse so one good case is autism Se- yes. severe yes. autism um my brother has severe autism he doesn't speak he never will speak um, he will never be able to live by himself he will never be able to to have a romantic relationship or a friendship to mean that's like cancer be great yeah, to cure it, yeah. but there are some people who have what's called autism, and it manifests itself in just a different way of thinking. In some way, possibly a better way of thinking.
0: Yeah, but Elon Musk has described himself yes. as being on the spectrum, right? And so
1: this would be sort of the Asperger's right. zone. That's right. And as you and as you enter that zone, there's a certain you know as you enter the zone, maybe the idea is well, it's just another way of being. You should respect it.
0: Well, and, and, and you point out that there's this arbitrary line we draw as to when a, a, a proclivity becomes a mental disorder. And so depression, you said something like two more than two weeks of this sort of right. sense of, uh, of depression or helplessness or whatever it is. And, and we say, okay, well, depression after the death of a spouse or a loved one is logical. And I think it's Johann Hari yep. in his book, Lost Connections, who makes this fascinating case that like, okay, well, if we think it's logical that someone's depressed for three months or six months after the death of a loved one, doesn't it make sense to be depressed if you're trapped in a horrible job or a horrible marriage? Or, and and here, here's this wonderful quote from, from Hari, depression is in fact a form of grief for our own lives not being lived as they should. A form of grief for the connections we've lost, which is quite powerful. And, and I guess from that perspective, one could see an increase in incidences of depression at scale of a society as a as an indication that there's something wrong with that society, that where maybe people are inadequately connected or that where there's a collective grief.
1: Yeah. Or or equivalently, one could see gains in happiness over time in a society as showing opposite which is things are going pretty well, society's doing things right. No, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I worry that sometimes what Harry misses in this is that two people can be in the same situation and one can get horrifically depressed, another one is resilient and shoulders through. And so you have to, in some ways, sometimes depression isn't the right reaction to it. Maybe sadness, but you should respond with, with resilience. Um, the death of a child is a case where you'd expect everybody to become deeply, deeply filled with grief. But, you know, if, if you're living your life and you find it, you know, you're filled with sadness because of the struggles of living your life, but it's actually you know, not a bad life, then then maybe something's gone awry. Maybe an analogy is, somebody, is there are people with chronic pain and, um, and they, they feel great pain, even though there's nothing that wrong with their bodies. But something is wrong to her brain that leads them to have great pain.
0: Well, when we think about how our understanding of human behavior has has changed since the days of Freud and in recent decades, in the perennial nature versus nurture debates, how much is how much is genes and how much is environment, it seems that the pendulum has swung in recent decades more towards nature you know, that genetics plays a, a larger role than maybe we once thought in determining
1: our path. Would, would you say that's true? Yeah. I mean, there, there's two questions about nature and nurture. One concerns universals, things we all have. So to what extent is, the, is our visual system or our capacity for language, our ability to walk, our ability to have short-term memories, to what extent is that shaped by our genes versus our environment? And here I'm kind of nativist. I think there's a lot of a lot of shaping force of our environment, but I think there's a fundamental human blueprint that 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 is part of our our, our nature that shows up. Then the other question is differences. So why you know why is one person more extrovert than another? Why is one person smarter than another? And so on. And there there has been for I think for a long while in our history, people thought it was entirely environment. And there's been enough research suggesting that just as with the body. Are the the brain is, large, is is shaped to a significant degree by by genes. So if I wanted to know how extroverted you are or how aggressive or how clever, if I know the extroversion, aggressiveness, or cleverness of your biological mother and father, I could predict where you would be to some extent, even if they don't raise you, even if you're raised by other people.
0: Yeah, but there's this fascinating data point that when you look at, at the big five personality traits of openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeability, and neuroticism, that on average, apparently, women have higher levels of neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. You write, if you took a random person and gave them a personality test, you'd have an 85% success rate at assessing whether that individual
1: is a man or a woman. Right so there we get to group differences and and there's some evidence and in fact there's evidence that using these very broad personality scales underestimates the differences sure but yeah, but yeah. again i mean one thing which is really critical to mention is, is we're talking about about overlapping bell curves and um, yes yes and so there's two things that follow from it which is say say take height men are on average Taller than women. Yes. Um, yes. To a certainly significant degree. But there's a lot of women who are taller than the average man, a lot of men who are shorter than the average woman. But the difference in overlap means that the extremes, you get a pretty strong sex ratio. So right. if you're looking at people, I don't know how the numbers at my fingertip, you're looking at people over six foot four.
0: Yeah. There's probably yeah. Like
1: a thousand to one ratio for men because right. just the difference is exaggerated. Similarly, men are somewhat more aggressive than women. But, and this is not good for, it does not reflect nicely on men. If you look at people who are bizarrely, extremely psychotically aggressive, they're far more likely to be men.
0: Well, and when we look at the group differences, I was, I love this little little factoid. Liberals score higher on openness, looking at, at the big five personality traits, conservatives score higher on conscientiousness. And and you point out that these are both positive qualities. <laughs> so, it's a nice to so have a
1: finding which everybody agrees on, as opposed to this right. group is stupid or this group That's is. That's right. I mean, probably
0: most people would be like, okay, yeah, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm conservative and I'm I'm more conscientious than most liberals, or I'm liberal and I'm more open than most conservatives. Yeah. And yeah. Maybe everybody's happy with that outcome. I, I I was amused by this distinction between maximizers and satisficers. Right, maximizers seek out what's best. Satisficers go for what's good enough. Um. And I think you said that in your marriage, you have a, there's a clear distinction.
1: Yes. This is the one bit of pop psychology, which has slipped into my book because you know, this, <laughs> yeah. the, this is a little bit of pop psychology. but, but, you know, I looked at yeah. the literature and there is a literature on this and this is a sort of a, a legitimate psychological difference, a way to categorize different people. Um, you know, um, Maximizers are people who who will spend a long time scrutinizing a menu and picking up the best dish. Satisficers just glances and he says, "You know, I'll have this." Satisficers, you they get in the car, there's a the radio station playing, they listen. Maximizers slow down and carefully turn the station until they get something exactly right. And um, and I'm 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 pretty much of a satisficer, and um, I'm I'm married to pretty much of a maximizer.
0: No, I as soon as I read this passage, I handed the book to my wife.
1: And and which what is she and what are and you and
0: asked her well, it's it's very clear to me that she's a maximizer and I'm a satisficer. So I feel your your pain and, and joy and everything in between. Um <laughs> in, some,
1: in some way it means we're both free riders because maximizers often work to make sure there's the best of everything. And they go through all the agonies to determin- this while we go, ah, eh, you know, just we don't care that much. That's true.
0: Yeah. Well, and you say maximizers tend to do better at life in objective ways, like getting better jobs because they have higher effectively have higher standards in are yeah. they're, they're fighting for a more optimal outcome. But there's some evidence that they can be on average less happy. Um, <laughs> and you point out that I think it took your wife six months to
1: select a desk chair, and this might be because they don't have a desk chair to sit on. Yes, yes. So she was, she did find ultimately the best chair, but it just took her took her yeah. a while. I would have just, you know, gone to IKEA and grabbed that chair and then just taken home.
0: Well, her delight with the desk chair she selected may may offset yes. the uh, the six months of crouching. <laughs> Let's talk about IQ, right? Which is, um, you know, a controversial topic but also one on which there's a lot of data and it's quite interesting section of the book. Do you want to tell us about your findings or or the the collective findings we have on
1: IQ and how it impacts your life? So IQ is your score on on a certain test. Um, What people are interested in is some sort of construct known as intelligence, which probably is a cluster of related things. And, um, you know, the test is, is, reasonably good at assessing people's intelligence and one reason why we know that is that it correlates with so many good things so people who have higher iqs they make more money they tend to be um kinder tend to be less racist less sexist they live longer they're healthier they do better at their job whether their job is you know uh, as a scholar or working in the Coast Guard or just about anything. The military uses IQ tests because they, they really do have tremendous predictive power. If, if you're stuck and you had to know one number about a person to be able to predict their fate, their IQ would be the number to use. But there's an immediate qualification here, which, which I do make in the book, and I think it's important, I think it's often missed, which is to some extent the importance of IQ is a self-fulfilling prophecy set up by our society. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not denying that being smart is good. I think if you're if you're a hunter-gatherer, it's better to be smart than less smart. But our society, I mean, you know, United States in particular, say, really, really values intelligence. So what we do is we have universities, including elite universities. And to get into the elite universities, you have to score high on SATs and GREs and LSATs, which are basically IQ tests. And if you don't score high, then for the most part it's a lot harder to get an elite university career and for the most part that means your life is 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 less good so in some way we iq matters to such a degree because we set it up we say unless you have a high iq it's hard to get into yale harvard princeton and if you don't get a yale harvard princeton you're not going to end up being the super elite in this country.
0: On the list of effects of or things correlated with high IQ, some of the more surprising ones, I was surprised by the kinder one. I would not necessarily have
1: guessed that, but that people with higher IQ also exercise more
0: and are less likely to
1: smoke. There might be some relation, some correlation with conscientiousness, with uh, what Angela Duckworth calls grit. I think the kindness is because smart people can look out for their, or, or can plan for the future in an intelligent way which often involves being kind to people. Suppose I have to deal with you regularly and I'm very tempted to cheat you or, or, you know, defraud you or just, you know, steal from you. But, but it's not in my future long-term interest, just selfishly. It's better for me to keep dealing with you indefinitely, which requires treating you fairly and with respect. There's two ways I could falter. One is I could have low self-control. Where all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're trading something and I just grab your stuff and run away with it because I can't resist. But the second way is I may not be smart enough to realize that that I'm just shooting myself in the foot. And intelligent people are smart enough to realize that sometimes you have to defer some sort of, you know, uh, exploitation just because it works out for you better in the end
0: yeah i I love the notion that altruism and kindness are actually good life strategies to me this this makes the case for for rather than seeing sort of people who who act in, in more selfish ways as um uh, as acting out of self-interest they're actually not acting out of self-interest well enough <laughs> right yeah that's like, right. like the it's it's a better strategy to be kind, to be generous. And and I think that that, from my perspective, That understanding can cause us to be, to have less of a sense of sort of moral superiority, which liberals are sometimes guilty of, right?
1: Which I think is kind of a dangerous tendency. I think that's right. I think there's a lot of sources for altruism and kindness, and some of it really is a sort of abstract concern for others. I know there are cynical people who deny such a thing exists, but I think it does exist. Yeah, absolutely. But sometimes it is a sort of intelligent, self-interested thing. Where you know certainly in a community, in a tight knit community, in a, a, a in a, a society, in a corporation, um, having the reputation for for kindness means people want to interact with you.
0: How do you feel about Carol Dweck's growth mindset, uh, and and, and how, how much can we grow IQ? And, and we know there's been this Flynn effect that people have been getting smarter on average for up until maybe recently.
1: So there's sort of two questions here. One question is. Carol Dweck's work itself suggests that um, a belief that IQ is flexible and can change, yeah. or it's any sort of skill, is yeah. a good belief to have. It keeps it yeah. makes people persevere, they take on harder projects and everything. I know there's been work that has explored this, some of it critically, and maybe the effect, as always with psychology, maybe the effect isn't as big as it was originally reported, but but it does seem to be an effect. Um, She does seem to be, I think, right in this. The second claim is, can IQ actually go up and down? And I think to some extent it can. I think that um, certainly if your IQ, if your intelligence is hampered because you're you're living in an environment which is poisonous to you or you're undereducated or you're being treated savagely, you get huge jumps of IQ. Um, Some of the studies find that to take a kid Who's raised in a terrible way, and then put him or her into a good family, causes a big jump. Moving us a bit older, there's a small IQ gain for each year you spend in university. Cynics might say that's just because you come better at, t- at taking the tests, but I think that there are environments that that, that flourish IQ and, and environments that diminish it. Yeah, and and not just IQ intelligence more generally.
0: There's an open question, isn't there, about. To what extent intelligence all aligns on the same axis of like, you know, if you're, if you're better at math, you're also better at understanding other people, for, for instance. Is that true or is it not true? Versus this notion of having different kinds of intelligence. You know, my personal change of perspective in the last 30, 40 years has been in the direction of seeing more different kinds of intelligence uh, and, and ha- having somewhat of a view that, let, let's say, to expand on that earlier point... That math skills and you know and sort of emotional intelligence or the ability to understand or empathize or connect with other other people don't strike me as being terribly correlated, <laughs> you know. So how do you think about uh, you know and, and and one could say if one believes that to be true, having a singular IQ test that everybody submitted to uh, would do an injustice both to the employers who are using it to make
1: decisions and to the the people taking the test. What do you think about that? So the, the standard intelligence test is in some way a test of multiple intelligences, right? So yeah. they ask you about your math, then you have the vocabulary test and spatial rotation. And it makes sense. You, you might have imagined that, you know, people are good at math or bad at words. It turns out, though, maybe for interesting reasons, that there is a pretty high correlation between them. A good analogy is athletic skills, right? So imagine we did it. We did a how fit are you? tests. And so it involves how much can you bench press? How fast can you run? What yoga positions can you get into? And you could really imagine somebody being a really great marathoner, but can't lift very much or something like that. Sure. But it would so happen if you gave that test to 10,000 people that on the whole there'd be a correlation. A a healthy fit, 21 year old would do great at all of those things are pretty good at all those things. A very sickly 90 year old would do poorly at all of those things. And intelligence seems to be the same way, at least within the sort of parameters that are usually tested for an intelligence test. One of the big surprises is it's correlated. You're better than average at math, you're likely to be better than average at verbal skills, you'd likely to be better at average at doing analogies or spatial relationships. Now when you start looking at the sort of broader multiple intelligence things, so, you know, social intelligence, emotional mm-hmm. intelligence, my understanding is there still exists a correlation, maybe not as large. But mm-hmm. if you find somebody who has an IQ of, you know, very standard IQ of very high, my bet is they will probably really be better than average on these other forms of intelligence.
0: Coming up, we get to the bottom of the age old question, does money make you happy? And if so, how much? The Next Big Idea is sponsored by The Next Big Idea Club. That's right. The Next Big Idea is more than just a scintillating podcast with a debonair host. It's part of the coolest learning platform on the planet. Here's how it works. Every season, our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink, handpick dozens of the best new books. Then we partner with the authors of those books to create Book Bites. These are 12-minute audio summaries written and read by the authors themselves, and the only place you can find them is in the Next Big Idea app. And that's not all you'll find once you download it. Our app also has beautiful audio and video e-courses, ad-free versions of this podcast, bonus author conversations, and lots of other mind-expanding content. Download the Next Big Idea app today. Better yet, do it right now. Pause this recording, go to your app store, and search for Next Big Idea. Getting smarter has never been so easy. It's just in the final chapter of the book that you give yourself permission to address a topic of great broad interest, which is, you know, positive psychology, what what makes us happy? Yeah. Let's talk about, about money and happiness. It's actually quite obvious that money would make people happy. We we we, we talk about it as if that's counterintuitive. And, and there's been some debate. I remember for years, everybody said, oh, well, it, it, you know, having more money, having more income makes people happier, up, up to $75,000 yeah. a yeah. year of income, and then it no longer has an effect. More recent studies have suggested, well, on for better or for worse, the effect continues. Why do you think it's obvious that more money should make people happier?
1: Yeah, I, and and I've been around long enough that I remember, and to my embarrassment, lecturing intro psych like students, by saying, isn't it amazing that money doesn't make you happy? Because that's what the initial studies, which were not well right. done, oh, found. Okay. Um, but it's pretty clear it doesn't be amazing if it didn't. I mean, money can buy you um, time with your family and, and friends. Money could buy you medical care. Money could buy you better food, travel, freedom from dangerous circumstances, the ability to not to work in a degrading or dangerous job um, in every possible way, differing across countries. So in some countries, money is essential to get medical care for you and the ones you love. Other countries have more of a safety net, but still money matters. And so common sense is right. You know, better to make it a lot of money than a little bit of money. Common sense is also right in saying that there's diminishing returns. And this kind of makes sense too. If you make um, $50,000 a year and somebody offers you another $50,000, that's going to transform you. But if you're making a half million a year, it has less of an effect. So yeah, money money is connected with happiness. I will say though, and this is something um, Dan Gilbert talks about a lot, that Particularly at the high end, the difference isn't so much that you should give up other things. So the biggest connector to happiness, probably besides your genes, is social connectedness, being with people you love, who respect you, who treat you kindly, who you have fun with. And you might be doing the math wrong if you make a healthy income and you decide to make a little bit more money, but that keeps you busy so you don't spend time with friends and family. That might just be, from a purely hedonic point of view, a mistake
0: then you cite the surprising data point that people who believe they need money to be happy are less happy, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, Which you say, it sounds like you should inherit money or maybe make money accidentally. Like, how,
1: how do we explain that? I think the core finding here is that people who strive to become happy, who, um, yes. who the, the core finding people who strive to become happy tend to be less happy on average now i gotta be a little bit cautious here because this is a sort of psych finding you can imagine going both ways maybe the striving makes you unhappy um, which is a story i like to tell a little bit and the authors of the work like to tell but maybe people who are unhappy strive more so it's kind of hard to pull apart but yes but regardless yes. it seems like there's there's a lovely study I summarize in the, in the book which looks at the happiest people in the world. So they look at people there's, there's yeah. these large scale studies and look at people who are like nine or ten on a 10 point scale of how happy you are. Uh, all sorts of other scales you're just they're just blissing out. And so what are these people like? And yeah, um, yeah. and what you see is they're, they're it's, it it's everything. They're healthier. They exercise more, they're more curious. They do make more money, not a staggering amount of more money, but they make more money. But mostly it's social connectedness. And so I feel that these people, it's not that they're spending all their time gritting their teeth making money, and nor are they spending all their time gritting their teeth saying, I gotta be happier. These are people who just spend a lot of time with those they love.
0: One of the most fascinating observations in your happiness chapter for me was this idea that happiness is not in fact a state but rather it's a signal that our life is going as we would like it to. If we think of happiness not as itself the state that one wants to achieve, but rather it's a signal of whether we're doing things right, we might note that, hey, when, we're, when, when we connect more with our loved ones and we're more generous and kind, that, uh, that we're happier. If we learn from that signal, we will end up happier
1: more of the time. I think it's in some ways more complicated than that. Uh, I argue in my last book and I, I, I wave at this in this last chapter that I'm a motivational pluralism pluralist. Yes, so I think yes. there's there's more to life than being happy. There's also establishing meaning, there's being a good person. There's other things we might want besides happiness. But happiness is is a fairly good indicator
0: and i think part of the problem here is a semantic one right that it's it, it just feels inadequate as a word it it kind of sounds sugary <laughs> right like something i feel like we need a, a new word like like umami for taste right we needed yeah. a, new, a new word to describe taste experience and we needed umami for, you know for happiness that, that captures some layers of human satisfaction that are that are not simple and this and and this is uh, in the direction of supporting your, the thesis of your last book which is uh, that we humans have motivational pluralism right that there's not a there's not a single thing that we want or aspire to but a, a range of
1: gratifying experiences i think that's right i think that's right i think that and, and there it's not a psychological claim i mean i'm sort of this is a more of a philosophical or moral claim as a psychologist we could study we i could ask you know what makes you happy and look at different influencers but you know, moving outside that we could also ask as people, is there more to life than being happy? And I I think that there is.
0: Well, Paul, this conversation has made me happy. Thank you for taking <laughs> some time out of your out of your afternoon uh to be with us. Um both the sweet spot and psych, the, the story of the human mind, are phenomenal reads, as are your prior books and uh So I I hope our listeners get a chance to enjoy them. And and, uh, thank you again for, for, for being with us today.
1: Well, thank you. This has been a delight. I hope we have a chance to do this again.
0: That was Paul Bloom, author of Psych, The Story of the Human Mind. Paul's last book, The Sweet Spot, was chosen by our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink, as one of the eight best works of nonfiction published in 2021. And Paul spoke about the book with one of those curators, Susan Cain, on this podcast. You can find their interview by scrolling back through this feed. There's also a link in the show notes. Next week, The Happiness Project's Gretchen Rubin takes me on a thrilling tour of my five senses. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Tota. The Next Big Idea is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.